Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Today I have uh, Carson Block. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Muddy Waters Capital, LLC, an activist investment firm. And uh, Muddy Waters conducts extensive due diligence-based investment research on behalf of companies around the world. Carson's also the founder of Zeros TV. So the website is zeros.tv an online channel dedicated to short-selling-related video content. And Muddy Waters, the firm had gained fame in 2011 following the publication of its uh, research on Sino Forest Corporation, which exposed the company as a massive fraud. And there's many other activist campaigns that Muddy Waters has uh, been involved in, which we'll talk about. So, Carson, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Good to be here. Yeah, tell me about your background and uh, how did you decide to become an activist um, investment firm? Sure. Well, I think it would be good to just explain that when that even though I'm what's considered an an activist short seller, and a lot of people, if they know, if they have a little bit of familiarity with the markets, when they hear activist investor, they'll think people like Bill Ackman, who are you know who are activists, but on the long side, they buy a lot of stock in a company and agitate for changes to the board and management strategy, et cetera. So that is not what we do. What we do is we look for companies that are highly dysfunctional, but are concealing that from the public. Could be from a legal perspective, it might cross the line into actual fraud, but the reality of the overly lawyered world that we've built today is that you can accomplish the same things. You can massively violate the spirit of the law without violating the letter in many cases and thereby not actually commit fraud from a legal perspective. So we look for those kinds of companies where managements, usually because they're dumping stock and getting very, very wealthy in the process, are looking to bamboozle the investors. I got here in a circuitous fashion, but I grew up in the investment industry. My father exposed me to his work when I was young. So my father was a sell-side, meaning he worked for investment banks, equity analyst. And he taught me that managements are good and managements can be trusted, but subsequent experience contradicted that view. And the short of it is, I graduated university in 98. I went over to China right after graduation, looking to open up an investment firm at that time, realized I was many, many years too early, came back to the States, did investment banking at a large bank, did that for eight or nine months and just loathed almost everything about it. I mean, I think the only thing I didn't loathe about it was my business card. And then I started working with my father and equity research. And so from 99 to late 99 to mid 2002, we were covering micro cap US companies and, and we were just getting lied to constantly. 
and used by these managements that you know, my father would uh, take the companies on a road show to meet with funds that were clients of his. I'd go to New York, Boston, LA, and San Fran. And, you know, like in some of these cases, and the stocks would really go up as my father was taking them on the road, but we'd find out later managements were dumping their shares. And at the same time that all of this, this tide went out and I realized how badly and repeatedly we've been lied to, the largest companies in the world, Enron, WorldCom, HealthSouth, Adelphia, were blowing up in accounting scandals and frauds of their own. So I was disillusioned and embittered and I wanted to be an investor. I thought there was just this tremendous intellectual challenge to it, but I also felt like there was, there was, I needed to understand how to protect myself against this concept of a financial predator, which I increasingly was seeing the management's public companies as being certainly not in all cases, yeah. but well, you know, quick question here, Carson, I know in hindsight, I'm sure, oh, it was obvious. Well, maybe not, but how hard is it to detect fraud at this level with these, um, these public companies? Is it impossible or is it, if you think about it, there are some things that you can look for to tell you something's wrong or what's this, what do you think? Well, okay. So I, I would prefer to answer this question without delineating between fraud and non-fraud, right? Like, let's just talk about manipulation of financials because whether it's legal or not gets to intent and, you know, knowledge of the company, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just talk about significant manipulation of the financials, making the profits appear much higher than they really are or less debt, et cetera. Um, I'm not uh, calling it financial shenanigans. Would that be okay? Yeah, and you could... You could do that. I feel like that almost minimizes it in a way because okay. a shenanigan doesn't, I mean, what the kind of companies we look for, we're not saying, hey, you know, your your earnings per share really should have been 8% lower last year. It's more like 50% lower. So anyway, I guess we're, this is semantics, but the first thing that I say is you really have to look for things that seem too good to be true. And, you know, the, so companies that have operating or that, that have margins that are significantly higher than their peers, even though you know, they're in a business that doesn't seem like it's really that difficult to knock off. Or companies that have been able to grow without interruption, despite looking at their at their peers and seeing that they have a much harder time of doing that. So companies that are outliers, um, now there are companies that are genuinely outliers, but you can understand why. Apple, Okay, Apple is a is an outlier financially in the in the computer hardware industry in terms of its financial performance. But by and large, companies that do seem to be outliers in good ways, you know, you really should take a pause and ask about that. Another is when you look at the in the incentives, and one of the best quotes about life in general, but from Warren Buffett, who said you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Actually, maybe it was Charlie Munger. It was one of the two. And when you look at how management compensation is structured, so if you look at the proxy statements and you see that they're, that they're being awarded significant amounts of equity compensation for what we call non-GAAP metrics. So non-GAAP, you've got with your accounting, GAAP, G-A-A-P stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Practices. 
And one of the real ills of our modern age in investing is this widespread acceptance, if not fixation, on non-GAAP measures of profit or profitability. And you know, just a little bit of a digression, but early in my career in the late 90s, non-GAAP came into fashion when FASB, which is the Accounting Standards Promulgate, Promulgation Board, they decided that all of these internet companies that were awarding stock and options as compensation, that they needed to reflect the cost of those awards on their income statements. And the cost is in dilution. You know, you, you know in the future, there will be more shares outstanding. And, you know, like Wall Street hated this because, you know, you're kind of peeing in the punch bowl here, FASB. And so they started talking about non-GAAP profitability. So if we X out the share awards. Well, that concept was so popular and so successful. You know, I say that with, hopefully you can detect a bit of a sardonic tone in my voice because we know what happened to the internet stocks after that point in time. They imploded. And this isn't the only reason why, but, um, but that concept, everybody likes that concept so much that so many companies now report non-GAAP numbers that's what they highlight in their presentations. That's what the sell side analysts write about and talk about. And those are so easy to manipulate. So again, going back to the incentives, when you look at how management's compensated, if a lot of their com- if they can get a lot of stock or options based on the attainment of non-gap measures of performance, that's a red flag too. So they're or at least a yellow flag. Companies that enter into a lot of acquisitions, a lot of transactions, that's often, um, in that, that's something that you should look at. And I mean, there, there's a relatively long list and probably goes beyond the scope of, of your podcast. But the final thing I'll say um, um, on this with the acknowledgement that few, even professional investors, have the time to do this, but in my my firm's business model, we do have this luxury. I like to print out several years of uh, transcripts from earnings calls and presentations and read them from earliest to most recent. And you know, you look for promotional language. If you do this over three or four years, there's always some new um, buzzwords that are really in vogue. Like right now, AI is picking up big time because of chat GPT. So if you see CEO and the CFO that their language is constantly adapting to the zeitgeist of that moment, that's, that tells you that these are very promotional people. And what I think a lot of investors don't understand is that, you know, while you could sit there and say, well, gee, they're trying to get the stock price up. Isn't that good for me? The reality is that you can step on the gas a publicly traded company, almost any publicly traded company, you could step on the gas, juice results for a few years, juice the stock price, dump your stock, but leave the company a hollowed out husk of what it used to be or should be. And if you understand that game as an outside investor, then you can ride along for what we derisively call a pump and dump. But if you don't understand that game, which I think is the case with most individual investors, they get stuck holding the bag. And that's a reason why you really need to, you really want to make sure that the management is not promotional, is not fixated on the stock price in the short term, that they're thinking about it long term. 
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Well, in, in a company, who naturally is supposed to rein in you know, irrational exuberance or these uh, these statements that are, you know, exaggerated or maybe even fabricated. Who typically well, would do that? And why does it fail in these companies that, that do this? Well, in theory, you've got a board of directors that's elected by the shareholders and that's supposed to include independent directors, meaning those who are not employees or executives of the company. And they're the ones who are supposed to exercise control over the CEO. But... The reality is directorships are generally perks for having had a nice, reasonably lengthy career in the corporate world, and they're effectively networking opportunities. And people who serve in these director roles generally don't want to work too hard. They don't want to ask questions. And if they did ask questions, they wouldn't be welcome on the board very long in most cases, and they wouldn't find more directorships, uh, directorship opportunities opening up to them. So in theory, they are supposed to be, especially the independent directors, independent of the CEO. In practice, CEOs, in many cases, effectively pick their own boards and it's just sycophancy. So that's part of the problem, big part of the problem. Hmm. Okay. How many interesting case studies of uh, you know problems that you've uncovered that, uh, that turned out to be really interesting or really huge or tremendously detrimental to investors? Any big one? Well, I mean, yeah, look, we've, so I would say probably only 20 to 25% of what we publish on are companies that we think are, are across the line from a legal perspective and are frauds. So of those, we've had eight companies that we've published on over the past 12 years have been delisted ultimately by regulators. Now, some of the companies have, you know, are, are still out there, you know, trading usually at a greatly diminished market cap. But yeah, and in terms of ones that are that are interesting, I mean, we the way I think of our business is that we trawl the sewers of global finance. So if you're the type of person who enjoys understanding how the world sausage is made then this is a great business. And we've seen a lot of that. But I'd say the, it's funny, I was just talking to a, um, a Wall Street Journal reporter this morning who's going to be writing a book. And he was asking me about what, you know, from my, from my career, what he should include. And I said, you know, it's probably, it's the best work we'd ever done, at least up to that point, and maybe overall. It's the craziest fraud that I've uncovered and despite it being the subject of about a dozen Wall Street Journal articles, it's weird. It's it's almost entirely unknown within investing circles. And that's a Hong Kong company, Hong Kong listed company called Zhongwang Holdings. And what what that was in a mainland China based company that 
produces aluminum, primarily aluminum extrusion. So that's those are those rectangular forms that are used in window frames and lots of other doors, lot construction of, of many types of products. And in, I think, 2009 or 2010, the United States government hit Zhongluang with anti-dumping duties. So we came al- along in about 2015, and what we were, and another investor had been working on this and was the one who got us interested. So what they showed us was that Zhong Wang secretly owns this remelt facility in Mexico, and there was there was about two billion dollars worth of aluminum extrusions just stacked out there in the desert at the facility. And so, what was going on there? And you know, I, I started this in China. I've lived in China now for a total of about six years of my life. I think I understand the place you know reasonably well. This was a situation in which the money was being stolen or you know embezzled from state-owned banks in China. And so what we uncovered was about five billion US dollars worth of loans that were made to shell companies that were uh, domiciled in China, but really controlled by the chairman of Zhongwang. So he's borrowing this five billion dollars with no, you know, no assets in these companies. These companies have no operations, and they use the, those shell companies. Then spent that borrowed money on buying aluminum from publicly traded companies, and so bought all these aluminum extrusions. Couple billion of them, as I said, dollars worth ended up in Mexico. Bunch ended up in facilities they secretly owned in Vietnam and Malaysia, where from which we inferred they were intending to dump into the Australian and European markets. And some also ended up in the U.S. being effectively smuggled in um, at, through mislabeling as aluminum pallets rather than aluminum extrusions. And anyway, the so the stuff that was sitting there in Mexico at this remelt facility, they were slowly converting these into aluminum billets, uh, very, very long aluminum billets. I want to say, you know, 30, 50 foot long billets. And they had actually applied to the United States Department of Commerce for after preferences to bring to bring these in and you know fortunately the doc was alerted by you know, probably alco that this was actually not mexican source aluminum that was chinese and so the doc never granted those preferences but anyway what you had here was you had fake sales because the the chairman was really buying the aluminum himself and he had no he had no legitimate end market it was just sitting there so from a financial fraud perspective, those sales, those profits, those were not real. That should have been, you know, the, they never should have been recorded. They should have been restated. Now, what was really going on, though, and is that, as I said, this was a scheme to embezzle billions of dollars from PRC banks. And I'm sure that they rendered unto Caesar there. I mean, there's no way the PRC banks have horrible controls and you know, every week, if you live there, you'll read about some branch level employee who's wanted for stealing like $50 million. But to get, especially in the middle of last decade, into the multiple, multiple billions of dollars, there's no way that that didn't occur without knowledge and consent of very senior Chinese officials and maybe even the most senior. 
Because from their perspective, it's what I would refer to at the time as the triple play, self-enrichment. So for Chinese Communist Party officials, that's, you know, very high priority, the priority. Self-enrichment, you keep the workers employed at the factories in China where they're making this. And then the third is degrading the industrial capacity of the U.S. I mean, this was a real problem for Alcoa. This depressed aluminum prices not just in the U.S., but globally. I know Rusal, which is controlled by Russian oligarch uh, Oleg Deris, I'm probably butchering the name, but Deris Baya or something like that. And this was something that was creating uh, problems for Rusal as well. But anyway, in the course of our research, we realized that unlike most of the Chinese managements that we looked at, we felt that these are that these people were dangerous. And so even though we knew it would prejudice our trade and how much money we could make on this, we decided to publish it, but pseudonymously. And we did, we made, and this is before we were managing outside capital, but you know, made about maybe $600,000 on the trade. And ultimately the U.S. seized aluminum. So after we published, Zhong Wang tried to unwind this and get the aluminum that was in the U.S. out. They'd gotten a lot of it out, but the, the DOJ did manage to seize about $30 million of it. And then the DOJ opened a criminal investigation that ultimately led to an indictment of Zhong Wang and the various family members and, and executives who had been involved. And yeah, we, and so after that happened, then one of the entities, the US entity controlled by Zhong Wang, that was based in California, domiciled in California, sued us in California where we were based at that time. So we ended up in state court, took about, I think, four years to get rid of it, spent about $650,000 in legal. I became a judgment creditors of Perfectus, that was the entity, for about $550,000. Unfortunately, the judge didn't award me the entirety of uh, my legal expenses as recompense. But the kind of the, the good thing, but the bad thing was, the Department of Justice ultimately in, in 2021 got a judgment against Zhong Wang et al. for $1.8 billion for evading U.S. tariffs. And in the initial complaint that was filed um, in the seizure in the seizure portion that predated the criminal case, they credited our report with starting the investigation. So to basically condense this, our report set off a series of actions that led to the DOJ getting $1.8 billion verdict for evading import duties. And the work that we did there, I mean, we had satellite imagery. Uh, we, we, you know, uh, we engaged some people who worked in the uh, National Reconnaissance Office to help us interpret the satellite images. We pulled records from Mexico, Singapore, Switzerland. We did some real hardcore undercover work in, in mainland China. We followed containers out of the port in Vietnam and, you know, took video of it. It was, it was really cool uh, work. And, um, but at the end of the day, kind of thankless when you think about it, because, you know, all the trading profits were eviscerated by the legal. And now I'm a judgment creditor behind the DOJ. That's got a $1.8 billion uh, judgment right. against these guys. Does that judgment do anything for you? Or is it just a proof for other potential uh, companies not to to try to sue you, or does it serve any purpose for you? Well, they still sue. I mean, I got sued um, in 2021. We'd uh, written about a France-listed company that was domiciled in Luxembourg that was 
basic facilitating uh, money laundering for organized crime in Europe. And so they had the public company didn't sue me, but two of their associates separately filed suit in California. And we got those dismissed. And under California state law for defamation suits, I was again, I'm owed money. But I mean, good luck collecting from, you know, this Italian dude living in Romania, who's, you know, defaulted on his judgment. So once again, I'm owed, I don't know, 200, $250,000 there that I'll never see. So one of the things is that that's become very clear to me is these malefactors, especially foreign, have a very easy time abusing the U.S. legal system to lash out at their at their critics. But at least in that case, the profits that we made on the on the trade more than offset the uh, legal expenses, but uh, not in the case of John Long. Are you surprised that these uh, these companies, you know, again, they're essentially under investigation or about to be or about to have trouble yet they still lash out and try to do this like what why do they do this you think so the the reasons vary i do talk and, and when i say this to people i get looks of skepticism so i'm i'm qualifying this and i'll and i'll justify it but there are companies especially the kind that we look for where the the ceos are sociopaths i mean are full-blown sociopaths now the vast majority of sociopaths are not axe murderers. The vast majority do not experience bloodlust. But sociopaths, according to an estimate that I've read in a book called The Sociopath Next Door, sociopaths constitute 4% of the population. And so you, you, you do run up against them in, in the corporate world, in politics. I mean, some of our politicians are likely um, high-functioning sociopaths. So... Um, so for those people, the sociopaths, they do not care. They'll be driven by a desire for revenge no matter what. A good example of somebody who quite possibly, you know, would fit that description is a guy named Patrick Byrne, who was CEO of Overstock.com and he was the founder until just oh, really? a few years ago. Yeah. I interviewed him a bunch of years ago. What happened to him? Well, so he was so Overstock.com around oh four, oh five was the subject of suspicions of accounting fraud. And so there were there were short sellers, there were short the stock. He was just constantly ranting about the short sellers on the conference calls. He fixated on them, he sued them. And his shareholders, his institutional shareholders were saying to him, apparently, look, just let it go. Just focus on the business, you know, produce numbers, they'll go away. But he didn't let it go. And the stock just went down the toilet in part due to his his focus on on short sellers. And I mean, he'd, you know, he say things like, you know, he he'd make statements of how he fantasized about, you know, doing violence to the short sellers and things like that. I mean, it was just unhinged stuff. But the denouement on Patrick Byrne is that he was in the Oval Office after the 2020 election as a trusted advisor to then President Donald Trump, urging Trump to declare martial law. <laughs> so like, you know, that's, you get some of those guys. So they will sue. And he did sue. Other times the companies will sue because they think it's an important message to send to their their shareholders. But before they go into discovery, they'll back off. Because look, discovery will not be kind. The vast majority of times you have an activist short seller out there on a company. And the activist short seller is generally 
you know, at least largely correct. So if you went into discovery and the activist short seller was well-resourced, I mean, you know, with what they receive in discovery, if that goes to trial, that would present a significant problem to these companies. So the very, 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 very rarely do you have a trial. In fact, I can't even think of one situation in which there actually was a verdict with the, with the company suing an act of a short seller. But I know that I've been sued. You know, one guy keeps suing, you know, likely falls squarely into the sociopath bucket. You know, his, we keep getting his cases dismissed. So we're on like lawsuit number oh. four, I think, from him, depending on how you, oh, wow. how you count in. Um, I guess if you include all, you know, I think four of those, I've probably been sued nine times in 12 years. Give or take. What is the goal of your activism? Is it just to bring to light this, you know, malfeasance, or is it? Uh, is there some other reason that, you know, this is your your focus? Is it just something that personally upsets you and you feel like discredits the whole investing world, or like like what's your motivations for this? No, it's it's a good question. I mean, let's let's be totally honest. This is a business, okay? It's how I make a living, but. I do it. I, I went over my background. I mean, I came to this out of a sense of anger. And when I began doing this, when I was in China, I had no idea that there would be money in it. I had no idea I could build a real business on this. At that time, I just had anger, you know, and I'm especially because I'd been in China, because I had repeatedly been, you know, been kicked by that guy in China who feels that the rules don't apply to him especially when dealing with a foreigner. I mean, when I suddenly realized that there was this systemic problem of fraudulent Chinese companies that had listed in the U.S., it's like, whoa, oh my God. Like now, okay, now's my chance to address my issues here. Like I'm going to expose you guys. You don't understand the way the U.S. works in the markets, but I understand your system. I'm going to use it against you and I'm going to expose you. So initially, a lot of this was just, you know, anger, but I, you know, became pretty clear after a little while that this was a business that, and that really the, the dysfunctions that enabled these empty boxes from China, hundreds of them to list in the U S and raise money here were the same dysfunctions that bedeviled me in the first leg of my career when I was on the long side. And that basically, you know, you can count on in any situation where there's money flowing, so capital markets, you can count on there being a certain percentage of people who are going to do the wrong thing. You know, it's it's basically, you know, it's part of human nature. Some people are just bad people and that's what they're going to do. So it then became a business and I felt like, look, you know, vast majority of people go to work every day. They're neither making the world better nor making it worse. And, you know, when they make what they earn, whatever they earn, I earn a pretty good living. I could have earned a lot more with a lot less drama and BS if I were doing this, if I were on the long side. But, you know, I felt like, okay, look, I make a good living and I can look myself in the mirror and say, in my way, I'm pushing back against some of the excess of the world. I mean, I'm not curing cancer. Let's be, you know, like I get that, but what I have the tools and training to do is deal with malefactors in the financial markets. And that's, I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual, but despite that, sometimes I think to myself, I'm doing what I was put here to do effectively, or I found, hmm. 
I guess a non-spiritual way of putting it is I found my way toward this profession that didn't even really exist, you know, barely existed until I started doing it. I found my way toward this and, and it's in realized that, yeah, I'm built exactly for this. Have you, have you found that there's organizations that either are overtly or openly, you know, rooting for you in your efforts or that, that partner with you, or is this uh, you have to go it alone? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty funny um, when you think about it. So if you go back to what I was talking about the, with the DOJ award verdict and award um, in the Zhongwang matter in, I think that was yeah June, July of 2021, August of 2021, right after I moved here to Austin, put and one Friday, I put my kid in the car. He's eight years old. I'm about to take him to school. Three people in windbreakers got out of the car, FBI windbreakers, and, and served me with a search warrant. And we and a bunch of other short sellers have been under investigation. And so you've got that that whole that dichotomy there where it's like, well, I don't know, guys. You know, you've opened up a bunch of investigations into companies that we've reported on, you know, and you've taken some actions, especially the SEC has. You know, are we, you know, like, so how can you simultaneously say, like, well, these guys are the problem, but you're the problem. And then, you know, I mean, something else that happened early last year in March, while, you know, the the DOJ thing is, you know, we're producing documents and spending millions and millions of dollars having lawyers, you know, review these things. Um, you know, something else that happened that was just interesting was the SEC issued me a whistleblower award from a 2011 case for $14 million. So, you know, I guess if, you know, in, in one phrase, my relationship with the, with the regulators is complicated. I mean, I don't expect this investigation to go anywhere. I mean, at least with respect to us and probably the vast majority, if not everybody who's under investigation in it. But, um, but it's, it's a strange, it's a strange thing, you know, to be, it was, it was a very, and it was actually, you know, I've, I've been very vocal about this and vocal in pushing back against, you know, what, you know, what, what I see as some of the factors that have driven it and people, personalities that have driven this investigation. And, you know, I, I've been asked, well, why, why are you so vocal? I mean, if you didn't do anything, then, you know, just like most people do, just kind of shut up and take it. But, you know, your, but your question gets to the answer of this. And that is, this has been part of my identity, being on the right side. And look, in continental Europe, especially, they're so protectionist. They hate when American hedge fund short seller activists go go to their markets and criticize their companies and immediately start having you know nightmares about mass layoffs throughout their economy over it. And so we've been raked over the coals in France and Germany, but that was not unexpected. I mean, they're you know, when you, I've talked to, you know, friends of mine who were, who were very senior regulators in the U S at one point in time. Yeah. They told me how, yeah, at the sec and they always kind of viewed the, you know, the, these foreign regulators and most of them as jokes in terms of their lack of sophistication. So that is to be expected, but you know, there I was going through France and Germany and telling my son about it and saying, but look, I'm kind of like, I'm not a cop, but I help the cops in this space. I help them get the bad guys. And I got to tell you, when they walked up the driveway and served me in front of my son, the blow of that 
to my psyche. And again, my my image or my my identity, not image, my identity as being on their side, it was profound. And um and it, you know, it's I mean, to this moment, like I am enraged by this whole turn of events. I've accepted it. It took a long time to accept that this is what happened and not let it dominate my thinking and distract me. In the beginning of last yeah. year, the first half was tremendously distracted. But but that's the thing. It's I don't know, you know, on the backside of this, I mean, obviously my identity ends up being different because I just don't know what to think of these of these people that think we're so you know so obviously conned into believing that you know this profession that exists to you know we scream at the top of our lungs for the attention of law enforcement you know look here look here they they somehow thought that we were attempting this massive Jedi mind trick where we're breaking the law by you know trading manipulative they never even have said what the what it, what the theory of the case was nobody has any idea what it you know what the theory of the investigation is but um but yeah and so on the back side of this i don't know i it just it does reaffirm to me look it's a business but you know maybe i should like maybe just think of it even more of, as a bi- being a business than i than i have historically and just you know not get so wrapped up in judicial outcomes you know for people on the other side well, um, how much of this has become uh, political, or you, you know, you have to keep an eye on that. Like, um, like you mentioned over in Europe, you know, some of these regulators don't seem to be able to do their job, and who knows what even side they're on. Are there situations where a company is so extensive and so many people have been paid off or make money from it that there's there's like a political pushback, or there's uh, there's people that will never allow the company the company to be compromised that are the ones that are supposed to be regulating it. Do you think that, uh, I don't know, corruption surrounds any of these uh, investigations that you've done? Well, not the not the overt, here's a bag full of money type, but I mean, one of the realities, you know, depressing realities of Western societies today is that you have this revolving door between the regulators and law firms. And so... You know the. I mean, basically, the the vast majority of people who graduate law school and go to work for the DOJ, the SEC, it's you know whatever agency as an attorney, they want to go into private practice. They want to make seven figure partner salaries at a big law firm. And you know, with I mean, the, but these big law firms are the ones that the companies have hired and lobby the SEC. And there's a and there was a really interesting case where it possibly was the SEC kind of testing out this this theory um, that, or testing out what it would be like to take action against an activist short seller. So what happened uh, several years ago? There was a, a very small activist short seller. He has his own had his own funds, but I mean we're talking uh, maybe ten fifteen million dollar fund, you know, something like that. He's actually an ordained Greek Orthodox priest. So his name is Father Emmanuel Lemelson. So it's like, it's already an interesting back pattern here. So he had shorted and then publicly criticized a San Diego-based pharmaceutical company called Ligand Pharmaceuticals. And Ligand then went to the SEC, complained, this is inaccurate, malicious, blah, blah, blah. So uh, Lemelson is based in the Boston area. 
And so the SEC's Boston regional office opened up an investigation. And, and so what I'm telling you now came out in subsequent court filings. So I believe this is that these facts have been confirmed. So the SEC told Ligand that um, they had looked into the matter and they were taking no action. They didn't see any wrongdoing. So the case was closed. So Ligand then um, apparently hired um, Brad Bondi, uh, who's a partner at a firm called Cahill. And Brad Bondi, the last name is familiar, his sister is Pamela Bondi. He'd been Secretary of State in Florida. And Brad Bondi had actually defended then President Trump in one of his impeachment trials. So you know, the guy's well-connected, right? And so Brad Bondi apparently, or Cahill anyway, apparently succeeded in getting a meeting at SEC headquarters in D.C. where Ligand, Ligand again presented its case. And the SEC reopened the investigation and ultimately sued Lemelson. So it was, it's a civil suit because the SEC doesn't have the ability to criminally prosecute. And last, uh, see, October or November of 21, it was a really weird verdict. The SEC basically lost, although their initial press release trumpeted as a win, but probably the judge screwed up the jury instructions. But the verdict from the jury was that Father Lemelson, that these three or five statements he made were were false and that, you know, they, they, they were recklessly false or something. But the jury also found that he did not violate the security, the Securities and Exchange, the 34 Act, Section 10b-5, which is the, you know, has to do with fraud in the market. So he was not liable. It's a weird, it was a weird verdict, like I said, because they, the jury found that these statements were false, but they said no liability. So it's, it's effectively a loss, I'd say, for the SEC. And maybe them try to think about, okay, what would this look like if we moved against act, you know, activist short sellers? more aggressively, but that is an illustration of how this system works. And, you know, people have gone to law school together, or they used to work with each other, they'll take the meetings, they'll give a lot of credence to them. And, you know, and, and there's there's also an interesting role that academia has played in this. And one, one academic in particular who, I mean, the vast body of academic research has found that Short sellers make markets more efficient, are beneficial for markets, add to liquidity. Then there's been research into activist short selling, and the vast majority of that research shows that activist short sellers are generally perceived post facto as having been correct and you know are valuable part of the, the ecosystem. But there's one academic in particular who's at Columbia Law School who um, published a paper initially in 2018 called Short and Distort, concluding that pseudonymous short activists and and the the majority of short activists publish pseudonymously because of litigation threats and threats to their physical safety. So he concluded that manipulation by pseudonymous activist short sellers is widespread. And this, I think, is what really changed the SEC's and DOJ's receptivity to the incessant lobbying by company counsel because it purported to have had a pretty broad base, 1,720 different activist reports, short activist reports. And he didn't release the underlying data until 2020. And I I ended up writing a white paper. So I was talking about how I've been very vocal in pushing back. I did a thorough analysis of his data. And well, the first part didn't even require a thorough analysis, but 
only 20.9% of his data set had actually reported being short the securities. So the vast majority of what he picked up was just these, you know, kind of worthless writings that people put on Seeking Alpha. A lot of them are written by bots, I think, but just anything that was negative, like, oh, I think that this company is going to miss earnings this quarter because the expectations are too high. I mean, that's not what short activists do. You know, we talk about, you know, we talk about bad faith acts in, in deception by management, not, you know, they, we think they're going to miss earnings. But that I think is, that is what appears about, yeah, close to 80% of the sample consisted of, over 79% of the sample consisted of, was that sort of non-directional, meaning they didn't have position in the in the stock, pointless, you know, missive. I'm not even a missive, but just writing about companies. So that so that 1720 denominator actually doesn't really exist. But unfortunately, nobody pointed this out to anybody until I did in early last year. So I think that that was from what I understand. When this Columbia Law professor is going in there and it's like, hey, I'm Columbia Law and, you know, and the companies are the ones, you know, they're they're saying, yeah, listen to this guy. And I think that's what I think that's what changed things. And certainly the, you talked about the political element. GameStop, I think, had something to do with this, too, because the first person who was who received a search warrant was just it was uh, Andrew Left, who was the short activist who was on the other side of GameStop. And and so anyway, just, you know, about I don't know, a couple weeks after that famous GameStop squeeze, that's when the FBI showed up at his at his house and they went in heavy. Apparently, they're 20, 25 agents and they're carrying out cartons of boxes or you know, boxes of stuff. And I mean, I, I, you know, three agents who just wanted my my phones and, and computer. But but yeah, so I think that. With the fact that we had these people in Congress screaming like, oh, do something about short selling, it's predatory, which the joke of it is, whoever made money on that squeeze, you know, the longs in GameStop and the other meme stocks, they made money off the short sellers. Like short sellers didn't arm anybody there. They were the victims, you know? And so to be, you know, to be, I, I guess, you know, to be cast as, you know, the, you know, the, the wrongdoers in this when, you know, like they were the people who lost the money is is pretty crazy. So there's a political element. There's a very strong cultural element to all this. Just the suspicion of short sellers because you know we're we're taking the other side. We think we're smarter than the people on the other side and have done more work and what have you. But but yeah, the revolving door factor is I think a real thing in how this ends up working out. So where can people find out more about, you know, your activism? I, I guess because of the nature of it, you probably don't say, eh, next, we're, we're looking into so-and-so, or do you? Like We never talk about something ahead of time. And, I, and I'm generally reluctant to comment on companies that we haven't, you know, published on, let alone you know, researched. But, but yeah, I mean, we're, you can look at our, our research. We publish it online. It's at muddywatersresearch.com. And you also mentioned the little media platform that I own, zeros.tv. That's actually Z-E-R-0-E-S.tv. And that's that's video content. And it, yeah, I mean, we do a podcast 
you know, every couple of weeks that is very, very loose podcast, but it, you know, that one, you know, you might have to edit this out. I don't know if you do, but it's called zero with the zero instead of the no zero fucks given. And it's generally three of us who work together, just kind of riffing and, you know, talking the way we speak in our office, which is just, we have twisted senses of humor. And so, you know, we, but in addition to the ZFG, we also, they're also short activists who unveil their their new ideas on a, in a format called the chopping block. And so generally speaking, when we uh, reveal a new idea, I'll usually do it through the chopping block as well. And there's also content there that's kind of short selling 101, explains how it works or various aspects of it. What is stock borrow? How do you get it? What's a short squeeze? And then longer form interviews like with uh, this one guy is a Wall Street Journal editor named Spencer Jacob. He wrote a book on GameStop called The Revolution That Wasn't, where he takes major issue with this narrative that it was this retail rebellion against the suits. And basically, no, this was, you know, by Wall Street, for Wall Street, using retail as the pawns, not by and for the short sellers, though, to be clear. So I interviewed him and talked about the book. So yeah, that's uh, that's the type of content we have on that site. So if it's curiosity or interest to people, that's why I suggest they go. The last question, have you ever had the chance to talk to Michael Burry? He seems to be a, an incredibly, um, you know, he has a high work ethic for research and he just seems to be great at uncovering things that no one else has the patience for. Yeah, we've never, I mean, I don't, I don't like to talk about, you know, people, I mean, without their permission, I, I don't like to talk about people I do talk to or have spoken to, but, you know, I, I mean, We've, we've never met face-to-face back in the day. We've exchanged some emails, but never really, yeah, just haven't sat down and had a conversation. Okay. No worries. Well, Carson, thanks again for, for what you do, first of all, you know, because someone needs to point out the, well, I guess I'll call them financial shenanigans. You know, you don't have to. But uh, someone needs to point out bad behavior or potential bad behavior, and it's a good thing you're doing it. And it's really interesting work. So thanks for coming on this podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it as well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.